All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, we have joining us from St. Louis, we have Jack Deere. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks, Luke. Glad to be here. Okay. Now, let me tell you a story. When I was in college, I went to Abilene Christian University. And now you you went to Texas Tech for undergrad. No, just for one year. I, I went oh, to that's right. TC, and then TCU. TCU that's right. TCU, yeah. That's right. But you spent pl- plenty of time driving out to... Uh, Yep. To West Texas from TCU because you saw a girlfriend out there. That's right. And so you've probably been to Abilene a time or two. You bet. My son was a reporter there for a while. The uh, Abilene Reporter News? Yep. That was his what, first job. When was he there? It would have been uh, no, 2001, 2002. And then he left and went to Little Rock and then went to Florida and then went to St. Louis for about 10 years. His last name would be Deer. I'm assuming. Stephen. Yes, Stephen Deer. Uh huh. Okay, I didn't even check. I had I preached at a little country church, and they sent an, uh, a reporter to go out with me on a Sunday and did a full page story on me. And I, it, it's on the other side of my office, but with my headphones on, I can't walk over and see it. But I anyway, that probably it probably wasn't your son. But okay, back to my story. So I I'm doing undergrad at ACU. And I go to this interdenominational Bible study called Grace Bible Study, and the speaker is a gentleman named Matt Chandler, who was uh, who endorsed this book. Yeah. And Matt was um, starting to be interested in the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. He was reading books like uh, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, The Gift of Prophecy, and some other stuff, which were written by yours truly, by you. Yep. And so I started reading your books back in college around those... Uh, around that time. And so I I learned a lot. I read a handful of your books, maybe three or four of them, two or three. I don't want to oversell, maybe not four. Let's just go with three. And I haven't leaned into that part of my Christianity in many years, Um, just kind of evolved into a different, I'm still a Christian, but the charismatic gifts and stuff. And so I have a friend named Kelly Hughes who does publicity and she sent me, hey, uh, she sends me books in the mail all the time. And I saw a book with your name on it. And I thought, I would love to talk to this guy. I haven't kept up with him since then. I haven't really followed a whole lot of his work. And so she sends me this book. And I literally just finished it in my office a minute ago. That's why I'm two minutes late. Late. I read it this weekend, and I was absolutely blown away. It was such a, it, it's such a compelling book. It, it's not... It would be a compelling book regardless of what you do professionally and what you write about. Uh, it, it just seems like I, I was not expecting this at all. Is Do you feel like you've written something that's completely different than anything you've done before? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, the problem with a book like this is we're not really going to discuss ideas as much as your story because that's the subject matter of the book, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, but uh, but I, I wrote it for a reason, not just to tell my story, but I tell my story for a reason. Well, okay, well, how would you say the reason? What, what would what was your reason in telling your story? Okay, so you go to a church on on an average Sunday, and and you're going to hear obligations. Okay. Uh, that, you know, you should pray more, you should read more Bible, witness more, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you don't do anything. You know, you don't do any of those things enough. And so, so often the Christian life is reduced to a series of obligations that we don't perform well. Um, and I, I labored under that for a, a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
but the change in me happened about 25 years ago, and I began to seek Jesus as a friend. And we have our best friends for the pleasure they give us and for uh, the the uh, pleasure uh, they feel or we feel when we're with them. And, and so Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And so this book is about acquiring a friendship with Jesus. It's about moving from obligation to pleasure in our relationship to him. Hmm. It's about pleasure, but there's so much of heartache in this book. There's loss, there's grief, there's addiction, uh, there's friendships that are broken. uh, Okay, let me read you this line. You already know the line since you wrote it. Um, But there's a line at the end of the book about how you're like a desert. So you have this scene where you go to like... um, your wife's in a rehab place. You go there, you stay an extra day uh, dealing with anger and trauma from childhood. You have this cathartic experience. And here's a line. Uh, At last I surrendered to the truth that I would always live in the high desert, a mixture of the bleak and the beautiful. When people typically think of experiencing the pleasure of Jesus, it's often just in the beautiful. And... For some, there's an understanding that if you're close enough to Jesus, then all you're going to have is the beautiful, and you're going get to get away from the bleak. Did you, did you always have an understanding that it was incorporated in the, the messiness and, and the complexity of life, or is this something that you had to evolve into? So I might have said that you know, early on if I'd been pressed, uh, but basically I, I believed that, that I could come to the point where my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds, and life was going to be, uh, you know, maybe closer to cruise control. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and what, what happened to me, I was raised in a violent home, and I, and I was raised as a perfectionist. My mom was a perfectionist, and, and so she beat perfectionism into me. And so I've spent most of my life being disappointed with my performance, uh, thinking that that's how Jesus relates to me. He's waiting for me to turn in a better performance, mm-hmm. when the truth is, he can enjoy me in the bleak and the beautiful. And his life, if you look at his life, isn't it a mixture of the bleak and the beautiful? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a cross that he ends up on, so that's, there's plenty of bleakness in there. Well, he lost his father probably at an early age. Yeah, by the time we meet him, it's just his mom. You know, nobody mentions his, his uh, father. So almost all scholars believe he lost his dad at an early age. And, uh, and then he has the heartbreak of betrayal of people leaving him, of Judas uh, turning him in. Of Peter denying him, um, so yeah, there's there's a significant amount of the bleak in his life. Yeah. Um, oh, in fact, Isaiah yeah. called him man of sorrows, right? Uh, yeah, I mean the the uh, well acquainted with infirmities and uh, yeah, man of suffering, rejected by others. I mean that's the Isaiah text that uh, obviously the New Testament writers connected Jesus. Uh, I've never heard someone say that Jesus lost his father at a young age. So. That's news to me. Uh, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying I've, I've never, I've never heard a scholar say that. But regardless, I mean, well, well, strikeout maybe young age. There's there's no absolute proof for that. But that he did lose his father. His father's not around. His mother's around. It's unthinkable that his father wouldn't have been on the scene. Of course, uh, yeah. When he comes into ministry, yeah, I, yeah, I, I see that. Obviously, uh, for those who don't know, your background, you do a year of tech, do your undergrad at TCU, and then yep. you go to DTS. Do you, yep. you do, what, what was the graduate, the, you did a master's degree, a MDiv or something like that, MA? 
a, a master's and a doctorate there. I became a Greek and Hebrew guy in mm-hmm. seminary. And so you're teaching Hebrew while you're finishing up your PhD, right? Yep. Okay. Right. right. And so, the, so let me jump back into the surprised by the power of the spirit. Is that the right name of the title? I, I probably should yeah. have researched. Surprised okay. by the power of the spirit. Right. Um, and so the kind of the the angle for that book is here is a. Uh, Conservative fundamentalist is fundamentalist the right word? Can I can I use that word? Uh, D- Dallas would be a fundamentalist school. I wasn't a fundamentalist. Okay. Um, I, got, I got rescued from fundamentalism by Young Life. Young Life was relational yeah. more than it was doctrinal. You know, uh, and fundamentalism is not, not so much a theology as it's a personality type. It kind of a rigidity. That's what fundamentalism appeals to. You, you know, what you believe is more important than the way you act. Hmm. Okay, we're going to come back to that. That put a pin yeah. in that. Um, so you're teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, which yeah. um, connected to that that theological bent, and but somehow you are the theologian in residence, basically for this charismaticish type movement. And so that's kind of the uh, incongruity that people are not expecting those two worlds to be brought together with you. Obviously, that didn't end well with you at DTS. But when I first introduced you, this is like the. Leg- legitimation of this belief set, uh, uh, this this appreciation and value of the charismatic gifts that is valued to me because, oh, this guy's a legitimate scholar, right? So is that how people kind of angled you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for almost 12 years, I taught uh, Hebrew. I, saw, I also could teach uh, Greek. Those were, that was my uh, expertise. And I wrote a dissertation that, that 25% of it was in foreign languages. Hmm. Yeah, I... Um, I took a year Hebrew in grad school, and that was enough for me. Um, so th- there was a line that you would, in the book, about how you would give students, uh, you wouldn't fail them, but it would be a hard A to get, but it would be also hard to fail the class because you know not everyone has the same passion you did. And I had a Hebrew yeah. professor like that. So much thank you, much thanks for, uh, for being that nice of a Hebrew professor. Um, okay, so my attitude of what I was expecting in this book and this is completely unfair of me, and it, it speaks to the judgmentalness in my heart. But I assume, okay, this is a guy who's so accomplished, you know, DTS, and then he becomes this guy who sells half a million copies of his books, and then there's tragedy that happens in your life. Your, your book begins with your son's uh, suicide. Uh, in the, the press release that I got months before I got a copy of the book, it talked about uh, addiction, alcoholism. My assumption was this guy believes one thing. He experiences trauma in his life and it's going to change the direct the direction of his theology in his life. And then all along, um, you've been experiencing trauma since you're a kid. And so I completely yeah. misjudged you. And trauma was the very beginning of your life. Going back to your dad and your grandfather. How do you see that in connection to um, your spirituality from a young age, what do you think your Christianity was offering to you when you first experienced it at Young Life and then you go to DTS in light of the situation that you were born up in and, and raised in? So uh, so I grew up in a, in a, in a violent home, and uh, my dad was my hero. He commits suicide when I'm 12 years old. And my dad told me, I asked him once, how you get to heaven? And he said... Uh, you, you get to heaven by good works. And my heart just fell because I knew that I would, my good deeds would never outweigh my uh, bad deeds. And so when my dad committed suicide, uh, it, it was just so painful to think of him in hell um, that I just put God out of my mind. And, I, and 
and I, all of us, my brothers and I, we went wild. Uh, alcohol, guns, stealing, um, no supervision. Uh, mom went wild trying to find a man to take care of her and take care of her four kids. Uh, so that's that was my background I, when I heard the gospel for the first time. Oh, we didn't. We never went to church. So we had no, we not. My parents not only had no friends, uh, they had they had no Christian friends. It was really a sick home. So I had never heard the gospel until I was 17 years old, heard it for the first time on December 18th, 1965, and became a believer. And uh, then a young life guy discipled me, and he just had a, like a complete clean slate to write on. No, no prior religious experience, no nothing. Um, and, and it turned out I loved scripture. I loved memorizing scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, my young life leader was like my father, my best friend, and my big brother all rolled into one. And I was loved by him apart from my youthfulness. That was a brand new experience for me. So you're converted, wasn't it like at a Billy Graham rally? No, I went to a, I went to a Billy Graham conference because I have one smart friend who'd become a Christian. We exiled him from the group. He talked me into going to a Billy Graham conference um, in the summer of uh, 1965. And I just went to see Houston and to see the Astrodome. Mm-hmm. It, the Astrodome was just built, the world's first indoor stadium. And I could feel the presence of God, but I just said no to it. Okay. Uh, so Billy Graham, it didn't move me. I mean, I, I, I didn't come to the Lord in a crusade. I didn't come to the Lord in church. I came to the Lord in the middle of the night through the witness of a friend who loved me and prayed for me for 18 years. And those, I mean, for 18 months. And those things would be prophetic of my, uh, my life. Friendship would become the key, one of the key elements of my life. How, how so is friendship a key element to your life? Because as I read your story, it seemed like there was... So Scott was a Young Life director, eventually yeah. becomes your boss, the person who you name one of your sons after. Um, yeah. But there, a lot of the relationships that you write about in the book, whether it's uh, John Wimber to the guy that you start uh, Christ Chapel with, to people you work with at DTS, uh, to Elder Board at your church in Montana, it seems like there's so many fractured relationships and relationships that yeah. that kind of fell apart. So how, how do you, you say friendship is so central to it and there, there's so many that you describe as. Yeah. Those are, those are two different, two different parts of the same story. So for instance, if you read the book, you see, I'm never without a best friend. I'm always have a best friend, somebody I totally love. And the friendship is not not about getting something done. It's about enjoying the person and being with the person. So I couldn't find love in my family. I went outside my family. And before I became a Christian, my two best friends were Philip and Teddy. Mm -hmm. Philip was an all-star, tight end, basketball player on the football team. Teddy was the most beloved kid in the school. Those were my two best friends. And my biggest fear when I became a Christian was that I would lose those guys. And if I lost those guys, my life would turn forever gray yeah. because they, they gave me value, all that. Uh, Teddy became a Christian. Philip never really bought into you know the life we were living. And, and Ted and I ended up becoming young life leaders. I ended up starting a church. He, he came along with me. Uh, if you read the book closely, there's always one or two best friends at every stage of my life. But my friends, I'll say what C.S. Lewis said, my friends have been the chief source of my joy. Mm-hmm. The other part, part that's always torpedoing me with friends and people in the church is this harshness, this perfectionism in my life, and this uh, 
feeling that I'm right, you know, as opposed to other people. And, and the worst feeling in the world in those early stages of my life was when I felt spiritual. That's when I do the most damage. It's when I feel spiritual. That's when the scribes and Pharisees did the most damage. Mm -hmm. So that that was um, that harshness was always torpedoing relationships, but it still didn't negate the fact that I always had a best friend. Yeah, yeah. That I am right. Um, I, I do a lot of damage when I feel like I'm right too. Um, and I think, like you said, I mean, the Pharisees and plenty of us uh, other religious people have continued to go down that road where we've created a great deal of hurt when that happens. You, you said before about fundamentalism that it's an, an attitude. Uh, let, let, let's go back to that because in in the book you describe DTS as um, uh, as a place where you had one professor who said this is the best seminary in the world, and if it wasn't, I wouldn't be teaching here. And yeah. you describe DTS as though it's a place, at least when you were there, where there was a great deal of of hubris. Do you think that's connected to the theological outlooks and the theological convictions they have? Or do you feel like that's just separate from, and it's more a character thing, that it's not connected to how they read the Bible and how they understand it? Uh, I think it's a little bit ca characteristic of fundamentalism. In fundamentalism, you're sure you're right and everybody else is wrong. Mm -hmm. And being right is so important. It's more important than behavior. Um, it, and so at Dallas, it was really common for professors to say, this is the best seminary in the world, for students to say that. And, and none of us, uh, even I said that as a student, I, I felt that as a professor. And none of us were aware of how uh, dangerous that feeling is, how, how much spiritual pride there is in it and how much superiority there is. In um, even in the language of, uh, you know, we, we teach orthodox theology or, or we preach the Bible, uh, underneath that is an assumption that there's only one way to preach the Bible and that we're the only ones who do it right. And I, I'm not saying that's just DTS people. That's a There's plenty of people in Christianity that are not connected to DTS that use that same sort of language of, we're the ones who are orthodox, we're the ones who are right, we're the ones who, who teach the Bible correctly. If you could go back and talk to yourself before you go to DTS or in the midst of your seminary education, what would you tell yourself? What, what would you do to prevent your, yourself from going down, down that, that path? I don't know. I, I think it's pretty much impossible. You're young, you're impressionable. The, the old, uh, the, the do-overs, you don't really get those. Uh, as a, uh, you know, as a professor now, like if I were a, a prof professor there at 69 years old, I would tell them, this is, this is not the greatest seminary in the world. That, and it's really dangerous to think that. But Ask me how, how I would do that at 21 or 22, or when I became a professor, I was 27. I, I wouldn't have been able to well, do it. Tell, tell the 27-year-old professor, the precocious professor, what he should be worried about. Tell the 21-year-old student who is going to seminary who thinks that they are in the best seminary and they've got it all figured out. So, yeah, if I could, you know, just looking back at my education now, I had three great professors, two Greek professors and, and one Hebrew professor that were just— um, amazing. And I'm totally grateful for the education uh, that I got there. Um, it, and I would think, let's just have gratitude for uh, for the education we're getting, but not believe that it's the best in the world. Uh, education is not the most important thing in the world. Your heart's the most important thing in the mm -hmm. world. You know, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's like the key to life, Jesus mm -hmm. said. And loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, and he's the one that grades us on that, not ourselves. Do you think if, 
some use a language of orthopraxy. We talk about orthodoxy, which is right thinking. Orthopraxy is the right way of living. Do you think if the emphasis was more on loving and, and, and the practice of our life that there would have been an room for your connection to John Wim- Wimber and uh, second wave cares? I, I'm not, I feel like I'm third, third, third wave. Yeah, third I, wave. I, my language uh, is not that good on this. Would there be a way to make room for that if love was the centerpiece instead of we have the right thinking, we're the best seminary? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think if if it's a seminary, we we saw our main purpose to teach future pastors how to be lovers of God and lovers of people. Yeah, I think it would have been a totally different place. But uh, love, love was assumed in our seminary. It was never emphasized or taught. Uh, y- y- what was emphasized, the motto of our seminary was not love one another. The motto of our seminary was preach the word. So you have to know the word to preach the word. So, so really the highest value while I was there was knowing the Bible. Hmm. And that's the way we describe really great Christians. Oh, he really knows the Bible. Not he's a great lover. That was, that was not high on the list of, of compliments that I heard when I was... Uh, that yeah, was. Th- that's, that's heartbreaking. But, um, but, but uh, look, I think that's true in most seminaries. I think that's true in most denominations. I mean, uh, when I was a Southern Baptist, we felt like the Southern Baptists were the greatest denomination. When I was a Presbyterian... I heard Presbyterians talk like this is the greatest, you know, we've got the liturgy, we've got the word, da, 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 da. Uh, it's, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Americans think America is the greatest country in the world, and, and we're not embarrassed to say that out, out loud. Well, just when you put that on a religious level, then it becomes spiritual pride. Um, but it's just, everybody's infected with I that. I agree. I'm, I'm from the Church of Christ. We've, we've told people we were the only ones going to heaven, so I, I've got no room to... Uh, cast judgment at anyone else. I can't throw stones because my group has done that uh, pretty frequently. And luckily, many of us have moved past that. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, but it seems that, it, it seems like, I don't know if there's a line in your book about religion equals order and that where you're coming from, from a, like a, a violent, abusive, alcohol uh, alcoholic family, uh, your mom was an alcoholic, um, that the order that's offered in this sort of legalism would be very comforting of, like, this is the exact right way to do it. This gives you order and balance. Do you feel like, do you feel like that's more appealing to people who are coming out of chaos to, to get this sort of do X, Y, and Z and that's it? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I think, I think when, you, when you're used to having no order and all of a sudden you have order, but I, I wouldn't call my uh, Southern Baptist church that I joined, I wouldn't call it legalistic. I mean, I, I, it, it did bring order into my life. You go to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, you pray, uh, you read scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there were all of a sudden there were older men in my life to brag mm-hmm. on me. And I had that since my father died. Actually, my father never really bragged on me. He left too soon. Uh, I had a I had a stable place to eat Sunday lunch with a family that loved each other. I watched husbands kiss their wives in public, and and, and that was all wonderful. And and I was told some of the basics of Christianity. I mean, you're supposed to tithe, you're supposed to witness. All those were were good things for me. It was yeah, it, it was really helpful. I wouldn't call it legalistic. It's only legalistic when you think we when when I turn those practices into something that earns me status before oh. God. It seemed that, as I read the book, the the legalism and the sort of arrogance was not connected to a church, but it was to your to DTS. I don't, I, I didn't sense that you were pointing that at any church in the book. Yeah. Uh, 
so you go from DTS and you get introduced to uh, John Wimber and you uh, actually you you invite some guy to come in and speak and he wants to talk about this at your church uh, Christ Chapel that, that's the name um, yeah huh? which uh, you were at a different church there was conflict with another Sunday school teacher and you end up planning this church while you're teaching at DTS which sounds like you're doing a, a whole lot of work. Yeah, so uh, so I'm a young professor. I'm teaching at a Bible church in Fort Worth, and until I came in, the uh, there was an elder there who was a lawyer. He was like the theologian in the church. His class has about 25 in it. I come in. The church only has maybe 350 people in it. My class goes to 200. They have a video overflow room. His class shrinks. The the, the pastor puts me on staff, and. Uh, I should have been. I had no experience in in church politics yeah. by then, but I should have known right off the bat when my class went to two hundred and his stayed down low, and he's thirty years older than me. One of us has got to yeah, go. Yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, yeah, so he he engineered my uh, departure, and and I just gathered a couple of the lawyers and, and upper middle class people that were in my Bible study, and I said, "Hey, let's go start a church of our own." They go, "Okay," so we go down and we start this church. Christ Chapel last I don't know what it had this Easter but last Easter it had 12,000 people on Sunday. Oh, that's so it's it's surpassed the other church uh significantly. No. Do you have a relationship with Christ Chapel still? Uh with the pastor Ted I do. We uh I I really wounded Wait, him. Ted is in the guy the your childhood friend is still the pastor there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I brought him. I brought I didn't him know he was still there though. The, uh, yeah, he's so still he dropped yeah, he's been so a, he dropped it. He's been a great. So dropping pastor. the name Teddy really worked out for him. Going to Ted worked out, so he could now be the senior pastor of this big old church. Yeah. Now I, t- I tell you in the book, I say if you spent um, you know ten minutes with me in a room, you might feel I was really smart. Mm-hmm. But if you spent ten minutes with Ted, you might feel you're the most important person mm-hmm. in the world. Ted had Ted had social and people skills that I didn't have, and um, the great great. Uh, the pastor and he he built the church into something really uh, wonderful. I, I was the impetus for starting the church, but I wasn't the guy that could have grown the church. Ted Ted was the guy who who grew the church into something really uh, wonderful. Meets a lot of needs. And mm-hmm. It's a kind place. Well, that's great. He's still there. I I have friends who who go or have gone to that church, and I just didn't know that uh, he was still there. Well, that's um, interesting connection. Uh, but uh, while you're there, you bring in this theologian who wants to teach on charismatic gifts. You, you reassess your understanding of this, takes you down a whole new path. You end up um, obviously having to leave DTS. You leave that church. You become this well-known speaker. Hence, people like me in Abilene, Texas, find your books because Matt Chandler is talking about them in his sermons, and you're this prominent figure. Now, what I really appreciated in the book is that you you didn't just talk about the the special charismatic moments that you had and the experiences, but you also talked about the the ones that didn't get answered and the healings that, that didn't come yeah. through. And there's a story, yep. I think the lady's name was uh, Coco. Is that right? Yep. And she's up in Montana, yep. beloved person. Uh, I think there's a line in the book that said people even thought you came to Montana just to bring healing to her. And yeah, it never true. happens. She died. I buried her. I, I have a friend who's an oncologist and she's told me, that sometimes the people who deal with grief the worst are Christians because they never accept the reality that death could be their end right now, like that this is not going to be in healing. I'm assuming you could tell stories of the other side of that, where you have had miraculous healings, where people 
which you, there are some in the book you talk about, but how do you how do you embrace faith while knowing that the way of cocoa is a very realistic possibility for many of us when it comes to cancer or serious illness? Well, I mean, uh, faith, faith doesn't mean that everything you want is going to happen. And it doesn't mean that every prayer you prayed is going to get answered uh, yes. You know, faith is actually trusting Jesus to do what he said he would do. What did he say he would do? He didn't say he would heal everyone. The key verse for me is Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence in time of need, and God will give grace and mercy to meet our need. So what does he promise us? If we come before the throne, we'll always get grace and mercy. Sometimes that grace will take the form of a healing of a, uh, uh, or of a, some kind of miraculous deliverance. Sometimes it will take the form of power to endure the pain when the healing didn't mm-hmm. come. So that's what he promises. And you don't know which he's going to give you unless he tells you ahead of time. Most of the people I pray for, I, I don't have a clue whether they're going to be healed or not. But I always believe God's going to give them grace if they want it. Has that changed? Because you've firsthand dealt with prayers that I'm assuming you've wanted your wife, uh, her addiction to alcoholism to, to be gone years before. And you wanted your son's yeah. issues and addictions and, and hurts to be gone. Go, going through those yeah. firsthand and maybe not getting the prayer request answered the way you want, has, did it change your understanding of how those things work? No. I mean, he never promised me he'd heal my son. Uh, but, but I prayed for my son more than I prayed for anybody, and then I lost him. Psalm, what, Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good, and what you do is good. That's where faith comes in for me, is to believe that God is always good, and what he does is always good. I may not be able to see the good. I mean, maybe by allowing my son to be uh, taken, God may have saved the life of another family. My, my uh, wife lived in horror that he was, he was going to take out another family in the car because he would get drunk or high, and he would drive 95 miles an hour, or that we would, that we would be visiting him for the rest of his life in jail after he'd killed uh, people. Now, my wife is a different story in, in terms of how it worked for me. So I pray every day that God will give me, that God will cause my, I've, I planted a church, this is in 2004, really, I just took over a dying church, but I called it planting a church. So, and it's for the first time in my life, the church is not growing. It's hovering around 250. I'm preaching the best messages ever. So I'm praying for my church to grow. I'm praying for my wife to stop, uh, to stop the, uh, to stop drinking, to stop the opioids and all that. And neither of those prayers is being answered. And those go on for years and years and years. And, um, now in hindsight, now, now that we're through this on the other side, I, I see why the delay was there. If God had caused that church to grow, it would have been bad for my spiritual life. I would have taken credit for it. I would have said, yeah, see, I know how to grow a church. I know what, how, how to have a church that moves in power and teaches the word. And what I needed to learn in my wife was how to love her, not how to get her fixed. And, um, and so much of what I did during that time made her uh, uh, addiction worse, me thinking that I could control it. And so those unanswered prayers for all those thousands of days, they brought me to a place 
where I had to learn how to feel the affection of God when there was nothing left for me but the affection of God. I didn't have a church I could brag about. I didn't have a book. I couldn't write a line in a book. And my wife was uh, not healed. So that turned out to be one of the best things he ever did for my spiritual life. Letting me find or feel his affection was so much wrong in my life instead of me getting myself worth uh, from those successes. Uh, we all we all want our self-worth to come out of the affection we feel from God, not out of some deal we've done, some accomplishment. No. But the accomplishments are far more tangible, and it's easier to, to feel those things sometimes than if... Yeah, and that's what people compliment us on. That's what, you know, people don't compliment us on, oh, you feel the affection of God, that's so great. You know, I never get that compliment, but I but I hear, hey, that was a great sermon, or I love that, that paragraph on the book, or, uh, man, what a great husband you are. You hung in there when your wife was going to the hospital and, and having to be revived and all that. Hmm. But God looks at something different. He, he looked at where my heart is. Am I enjoying him, or am I finding my self-worth in some kind of accomplishment that nobody's ever going to remember in eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, towards the end of the book, uh, there's this heartbreaking scene with your wife, and uh, at one point, there's the feeling that you're going to be exposed as a fallen pastor, you're going to be called a fallen pastor, whatever that fully entails, I'm not sure. Um, but moving from someone who, as you talk about in the book, being on very large stages and, and large platforms and having lots of people want to say, hey, I love this book or this talk, uh, to being that. I, after experiencing so many traumas, does that just not matter anymore? Because you know, losing a son compared to losing your reputation, it seems like that, that couldn't even hurt anymore. Or does, do they just compile on top of each other? No, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, I lost my son. It, at the time I lost my son, and especially the year before, uh, I had the most wealth I'd ever had. I was close to never having to work uh, again for the rest of, rest of my life. But in the end, after I lost my son, I ended up losing the rest of the investments and, and all that uh, sort of thing. And somebody said, Jack, this is the worst time in the world for you to lose all your money. It was actually the best time because it didn't mean it's compared to my son. It didn't mean a, a thing. So. I think there's, yeah, there's a sense in which having gone through the loss of my son gives me a totally different perspective on other losses or discomforts. It does not make me impervious to pain, no. though. Um, but, it, but it does offer a better uh, perspective. And then uh, when my wife left me for a couple of months in, in 2000, fall of 2009, and she did it in a way that could have ruined both of us forever, um, that, in some senses, that betrayal was harder than the loss of my son. I felt more pain uh, in, in some ways than I did after I lost my son. Why is that? Son. Why is that? Uh, well, my son didn't betray me. My, my son did something really foolish. Uh, Lisa and the people she were joined with, they were out to, they were out to wipe me off the face of the earth. And that, and loving someone so much, and then having them treat you that way—that that was really, really hard. There's a couple lines in the book about you felt like your dad did the same or a similar thing to you. There's a line about uh, dad, why did you throw me away early in the book? And then at the end of the yeah. book, you uh, yeah. you're at this 
treatment facility, and you said, Dad, why did, did you never hear of divorce? Why couldn't you just get rid of Mom? You didn't have to get rid of us, too. Is that the yeah. same feeling that it felt like with, with, when your wife for those few months was, was away? That... Oh, well, yeah, but when I lost my dad, I was 12 years old, and I lost him a long time before he pulled the trigger. Hmm. So he, he was absentee from my home. Mom's rage had taken over, and, and, and the more absent, the greater her rage. So my heart shut down as a child. And, uh, and it only gradually opened up again or began to open up after I became uh, a Christian. So now fast forward, I'm, um, it, it's uh, 2006, and I'm in this rehab for a week to deal with anger. And one of the things they had me do was to write a letter to my father. It, so now I'm a lot older. I'm 56. I've had a lot more time to think. Or I was 58. had a lot more time to think about the damage that had been done to me. And, and so writing a letter to my mom and to my dad were really kind of real thoughtful going through thinking about the pain but that came after a lot of counseling and uh, and a, a week long uh stint that did that at the very end of it so yeah that was like this was like in a way going back as a little boy but with the inside as an adult and saying what were you thinking dad i mean i never expressed my rage or anger at my dad it all built up in my life um from what he did but i never expressed it and until that day. And when I did, it was like, it, it was like it'd been bottled up there forever. And I never cried for my dad. I didn't cry at his funeral. I didn't cry when I was told he killed himself. Um, all those tears that, that had been trapped in my 12 year old heart just came out that day. It was a really cathartic experience. I, I can only imagine it. It seems that you you read though, your, your dad's um, departure from you and your family into other stories, like when, when Scott, who is your young life leader and the person who you named one of your sons yeah. after, when he gets transferred to Oklahoma City or wherever it was from the Metroplex, you, it, it seemed like you know there's dad leaving again, and then when your, uh, your professor who you wanted to study under to get your PhD, when he leaves, I, I felt like I was hearing the same language of, this is, this is dad leaving me again and again. Yeah, but actually, it's not so much about dad leaving me. It's about God taking away. See, my dad was mo- the most important person in my life. Then uh, at 18, Scott Manley, my young life leader, becomes the most important person in my life. Then in my early 20s, my uh, Harvard-trained PhD Old Testament professor becomes the most important person in my life because now the most important person or most important thing is learning the Bible. So it's like he takes... Uh, the most important people out of my life at exactly the wrong time. And that's what I felt in the departure of my father, my young life leader, and then my, uh, uh, and then my professor. There's this, I think I felt like there's a thread that was woven through the book of like the presence used this language of the presence was with you. Um, in moments throughout your life, like maybe when you were at, uh, your, the Billy Graham, thing where you, you felt something but you didn't go forward and obviously that right. that scene at the end where you, you've gone through the the anger treatment and then you feel light and you feel like you know there's a bird flying you're like that's what i'm like and so so you see evidences of, of like of this presence that i'm assuming you're connecting and calling god through all of this is that is that fair to say yeah well i'm a christian i'm a christian so uh i can feel the presence of god uh, and all Christians can. Uh, 
All Christians can feel his presence. We talk, we talk about that. Hey, C.S. Lewis believed in that. Read, read Perilandra. At the end of Perilandra, or all, all through Perilandra, he's talking about Ransom, his hero, feeling the presence of God. We, we feel the presence of evil, right? We hear mm-hmm. the voice of Satan when he accuses Revelation 12.10. Why would we think that God's just silent and it's all up to our knowledge of the Bible that we can't feel his presence or his affection? Um, the, we're raised in a kind of Christianity that's more Greek than Christian. You know, Plato didn't like feelings. Neither did Aristotle. And, and uh, I grew up with, and you did too if you grew up in the Church of Christ, with people who were afraid of feelings. They warned yeah. you about feelings. And yet love is a feeling. It's not only a feeling, but it's for sure a feeling. And and that, you know, your tradition and part of mine would define love yeah. as obedience, which is stupid. It's just absolutely stupid. You can love someone. You, I mean, you can obey someone mm-hmm. you don't love at all. That's true. So why would you define love as obedience? I mean, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's true. You can't reverse that sentence. If you obey me, you love me. That is not true. Yep, yeah, that's right. People, people in the military obey superiors all the time, despising yeah. their superiors. So love is way more than an act of obedience. You can't take the heart element. You can't take the emotional part of it and still take it away and then still call and so it So that love. feeling, you can have it in the midst of all of these things. And C.S. Lewis is someone that you, yeah. you reference uh a ton in the book, which is a great person to, to quote, obviously. And there's a line he has about, uh, we can nowhere evade the presence of God. It's, it's always around us incognito. And it, it seems like in the book, like you're, you're sensing this and you're, anyway, I, I found that to be, you know, really compelling. Um, one thing I want to ask you earlier when we were talking about um, Teddy, uh, Christ Chapel, when it, it, you were going down this third wave charismatic stuff, uh, Teddy's saying, hey, let's let's not go this direction, or Ted at that point. You're saying, yes, we need to go this direction. And you said that the women of the church were more aligned with you, and the men were more aligned with him. Why do you think that was? Actually, no, actually, uh, I have five or six really good friends that I hunted with, went to dinner with, and uh, and so we were friends with these couples. And it, it was the wives of those couples that came on our yeah. healing teams and began to spend a lot of time. And so most of them, none of them had to work, mm-hmm. work. Their husbands all were great providers. So they had free time to pray for the sick with me and Lisa. And then the husband saw them doing this, saw them believing in the gifts. Uh, and the husbands were slow to do that. And it wasn't, it, uh, it wasn't the best thing in the world for my relationship with my friends to have done that. It was kind of stupid. If I had it to do over again, I wouldn't. Do okay. It like in terms of it just didn't look like you, not that you didn't do anything on the, yeah, 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 spending, yeah, spending three days a week, sometimes eight hours a day, with my friends' wives, praying for people, mm-hmm. talking with them. Yeah, that's, that's these are like my, these 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 guys are my, my best friends, my hunting partners, and now I'm teaching their wives, but not teaching them, and they're moving along in the gifts of the spirit. Their husbands have all sorts of questions, and they blame me for it. Yeah, so it okay. I hear what you're saying now. So it, it it's not a statement that the charismatic gifts are seem to come more easily to women than to men. It was more a, that's just pragmatically how it's going to work out because they have time to devote to this and to learn and to study it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. We all love God. And then, and it, and it turned out one of the ways I wanted to express my love for God mm-hmm. was to pray for people and I wanted help doing it. And so my, the wives of my friends, naturally you go to your friends first 
And they were the ones available. Their husbands are lawyers and yeah. oil men and business guys working eight or 10 hours a day. So they can't do that. So I end up doing it with their wives. And I'm just kind of oblivious to the fact I might be helping create marital division in my friends' yeah. lives. But they told me, a couple You're, of them told me. In your, in your defense, you were not 59 at the time. You were 30-ish. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was 36, 37 years old. Never, you know, poor boy from the east side of Fort Worth, just still getting used to all the wealth mm-hmm. around me. And, uh, you know, ne- nobody taught me how to pastor a church, um, just flying by the seat of my well, pants. Sometimes. I know what it's like to be a 36-year-old pastor who's flying by the seat of his pants. Um, I mean, other people, not me personally. I know exactly what I'm doing. For those of you from my church who's listening to this right now, um, I'm kidding. Uh so you talk about a lot of people in this book. Did you, are they okay with all the stories you told about them? Cause like your high school girlfriend, I mean, there's a, a lot you talked about with her. Um, obviously your kids, your wife. I mean, did you get a lot of releases signed to do this book or how did that work out? I got some releases. So, uh, so Lee, but the biggest, the biggest course, person yeah. is Lisa because I, I tell the worst things, the most unflattering things about her. And uh, it, and I had a deal with her uh, in the very beginning that I wouldn't write a single line. I wouldn't publish a single line that she wasn't okay with. And I put in the acknowledgments at the end that she read every unflattering line I wrote and, uh, and wanted it published because she wanted people to learn from the abuse she suffered as a child. And then also, from the struggle with the addiction to opioids and alcoholism. And she stood on a stage and told those things to women. And uh, it's been amazing watching women, women weep and then make confessions of their own. It's a, a huge, huge percentage of women have been uh, sexually abused, especially when they were young. And the majority of them keep silent about it because it creates such an incredible shame. And Lisa didn't tell me about it for 32 years of marriage because of the shame in her life. And now writing this book is freeing other women to talk about what's and happened to them. I, I'm very glad that other women get to hear the story of how she's processed through that and how she's at a better place now. Um, yeah, I, I can't imagine w- what that would be like. 32 years of not being able to tell your spouse. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. And it speaks to the power of shame. Yeah. And at- Think about this, Luke. 32 years of walking into a room full of people and feeling like if they only knew what I was, they wouldn't want me in this room. Think about living like that. And, and when she confessed it, came out in the open about it, uh, that feeling went away. Uh, and then she's also had some, some significant healing prayer for it. But 50% of the power of shame is broken the instant we tell somebody who loves us mm-hmm. about the shame. I yeah, it it's kind of like scripture tells us about confession and you'll be healed. So it seems like that's in the Bible for a reason. Yeah. Confess your sins. Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, uh, like I said at the beginning, I mean, I, I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I started reading this book uh, a couple days ago. And it was, it, it's a great story. I mean, it's a powerful story. Obviously, there's a lot of truth in it and there's points you're trying to make, but it's, um, it was not the book I was expecting. And it's the book I'm definitely glad I read. And, uh, so I, I really appreciate you being so honest and forthright with your story and sharing that. And um, yeah, thank you.
Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks, thanks for uh, reading well, it and reviewing it. Yeah, well, it. I have uh, plenty more notes here that uh, we're out of time, but uh, <laughs> that you grew up in the world of the kiss compared to what the world is today, and I will let readers go figure out that line because uh, I don't want to say that one. Um, <laughs> anyway, thanks for the book. It, uh, it was a good one, and um, yeah, all the best. Thanks for the time. Thanks for checking Bye-bye. out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.